So I want to ask this question this morning. Um, if, if you see me get intense, it's because I, I am so moved by Jesus. Uh, it took me a while to get to this. Um, I was wrestling with so many things in my heart this week around what to share, and only at about 11 o'clock last night did the Lord settle something on my heart. Um, and so I want you to know this, that I, I take this very seriously, that I get to stand here, that you take time out of your week to listen to me say something or to listen to anyone from this pulpit. It really matters. And so I, I take that seriously to spend the time to make sure I'm hearing from the heart of God to communicate something that's from Him to us. And so I'm not preaching at you or to you. I'm preaching to us and trusting the Holy Spirit that He would use me as a mouthpiece. But my heart is positioned this morning to say, I really need this. I really need this and we really need this as a house. And the church really needs this as a house. And, and uh, I've been asking the Lord a question for a long time and I'm asking it more intensely. And this is the question. What do you want? What does the Lord want? Right? And I know that sounds so fundamental and so like, that's basic. Like, yeah, that's cool, man. But, but if you'll pause with me this morning and really ask that question from your heart, Jesus, what do you want? It's a good question because it starts to redesign and, and, and reprioritize what we do with the gospel and how we see it and what we understand by the gospel. Does that make sense? What is the desire of his heart and what is Jesus building? And I'm asking these questions because as a house, I don't want to do anything else. I don't want us as a people for my own personal life, but then for 24-7, I don't want us to do anything that isn't what he desires and isn't what he's building. Because if we're doing anything else, we're wasting our time. And let me say to you, it is easy to come up with successful strategic programs as a church that make us grow, make us look successful. And what happens is we'll fill rooms and we'll have a lot of things going, but we won't have people transformed by his presence. It's easy to do that. There is a formula and a method. I've been in the... the pastors forums and heard that I know it works man it really works but that's not what we're about we're about the heart of God we're about the desire that's in his heart we want to see the dream of God come alive and so I'm I'm before the Lord as a leader saying Jesus your leadership is perfect you lead your church what do you want our job is to be stewards of the desire and the heart of God on the earth and the beauty of Jesus is that he so longs to partner and co-labor with us to do that like he wants to use you to establish his dream on the earth because you're made for it. And, and if I can say it like this, the reason why he wants to use us to establish his dream is because you are his dream. In other words, by you co-laboring with him, you are stepping into the design of the dream of heaven. Jesus and his bride working together to establish his kingdom. Does that make sense? Unfortunately, we're witnessing things right now, and, and as a pastor, it's an interesting time to lead because there's so much information, so many voices, and you are saturated with content, right? So YouTube, social media, like, can I challenge you and just say this? What would you build your theology on if you didn't have YouTube and Instagram? Like, what is your theology and your understanding of God built on? Because I actually believe the design of God is He uses the weakness and frailty of man to be vessels to communicate the perfection of His theology. And the way He does that is through His local church, through His body, through His Word, 
And as we come together, in our weakness, his power is made perfect. In other words, before there was social media, all you needed was a Bible and a local church. And God would use that to establish godly, sound theology in his house. But now what we do is we, we have so much information and we think that everything we listen to is for us. And what I'm concerned about, and I'm, I'm not saying this because there is so much good stuff out there and so many good teachings, but I want to say it's getting easier and easier to share snippets of somebody else's revelation than to actually take the time to cultivate your own. It's easy to listen to that 10-second clip of so-and-so, the worship leader or pastor, and go, wow, that's really profound. Share that. Someone needs to hear that. But have you taken time to cultivate and grow your own revelation of who Jesus is? Because I promise you, that's where you live from the overflow. You're not going to live from the overflow on other people's revelation and anointings and things that God's saying to them for their communities and their spheres of influence, which might be 100% biblical and right, but is God saying it to you right now? And this is why I take this very seriously, because if we together are a family running together following Jesus, then what we want to receive from him weekly is the, the now word of the Lord to the heart of this community for what he's called us to do. And unfortunately, because there's so much content and so many things on social media, we now have opinions about what's happening in churches on the other side of the world, who we know nothing about, are not involved in any of those situations, but we have just enough information to have an opinion. And what it's producing in our hearts is a very unhealthy posture, a very unhealthy perspective, not only of people, but also of, of God, of the gospel. So for example, I, I actually, recently I had to unfollow like a whole bunch of, of people because I was, I was starting to feel my heart getting really unhealthy around some of the stuff that was being put out. And there's global situations happening right now with churches and communities that should not be global events. It should not be a global topic, but it is because we have social media. And because we have social media, we think that because I have access to a platform, it needs to be used. So now we say because we have social media and because I have this reach, everything has to happen on that platform. What's happening is we are hurting people. We are hurting people. We're deceiving people. People are getting confused. And again, I'm talking about taking personal things that God's doing in communities and making them global when it's just not, there's no need for that. Some of you might be thinking about specific situations and things, and that's okay. I'm talking broadly. There's so many different things that have been happening recently, but I can feel in my heart, I am stirred to see the true purpose of the church come alive on a local and then translocal level. And it's going to happen relationally as we run together and follow Jesus. It's not going to happen because we have a good marketing strategy. And what I was prophesying earlier, I want you to understand I'm not against social media. I'm actually, I'm prophesying creative messenger voices in this house that would use these platforms for what? The true proclamation of the gospel. Not bickering, slander, opinions, and offense. Amen. And so Jesus is building his church and he's preparing something. And I think we need to make sure we take enough time to pause and get his heart. Amen. Okay, that was a very different way of how I planned to start this. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to gently turn this massive ship really hard. So hold on tight. We're swinging around. <clears throat> Can I ask you a question? And this will be the question that we build today's sermon on. Does God desire a sinless bride or an intimate one? Just think about that for a second. 
And I'm using this question to just poke you a little bit. Does God desire a sinless bride or an intimate one? And I'm using this question to provoke us because I'm concerned that the church is emphasizing the very thing God hates. The church is panicking because we don't know how to keep and maintain the, the performance face that we've upheld for decades. That the church is just great, everything's good, squeaky clean, it's just amazing, and we're just, we, we have these incredible celebrity leaders who are amazing, you know, perfect people, and it's just not true. Everybody is in desperate need of Jesus, and the church has never moved from that place, just so you know. And so the, the false pretense comes crashing down, and the church panics, and so what we do is emphasize sin, so that we can look like we're cleaning up and making things right. All we're doing is putting up a new mask. We're not dealing with the problem. And I want to say this to you. God does not desire a sinless bride. He desires an intimate one, and to be intimate with him, he had to deal with sin. That is very different than God's emphasis being on you getting rid of sin. God is not cleaning up his church right now. He did 2,000 years ago. God is not having a conversation with Jesus and the Holy Spirit about how messy his church is. And you know what? We've just got the wrong leaders in the wrong places. And in order for us to have pure and true lampstands, I need to clean up. I need to tear down ministries, mess up churches so that I can clean things up and actually get the sin out of the church again. It is the greatest deception right now in the church. And I promise you, it's crippling us. God is not thinking like that. That's the voice of the accuser attacking the church, and we are partnering with the accuser rather than submitting and surrendering our hearts to the fullness of the gospel, the finished work of the cross, and speaking that life, resurrection life, into the church again. Repentance is meant to be the most joyful expression of the church. It is not a, a, a broken state of despair. That's called remorse. Repentance is to change the way you think. And if you're changing the way you think into what Christ thinks about you, that's a joyful transition. It might start with weeping, but it ends with joy. Are you with me? And so God doesn't desire sinless people. He desires an intimate one. And so sin was the obstacle, not the point. Are you with me? Sin was the obstacle, not the point. So just stay with me for a second. The goal of the church is not to be sinless. <clears throat> the goal of the church is not to be sinless. The goal of the church is to be intimate. Let me make you a promise this morning. Being intimate with Jesus. Your eyes are so fixed on Him. All you want to do is what he wants to do. All you want to do is minister to him, love him, and bless him. That's what he wants. But because we've emphasized sin in the church, what we're doing is we now think that what he wants is me to try really hard to clean up my act. And then what we do is because that's a little too scary and raw and vulnerable, so I won't do that. What I'll do is I'll pretend to clean up the act of everyone else. Now I've got an opinion about everyone else, and I'm, I'm, I'm part of the holiness movement that's cleaning up the church. Woe to us if we, if we are deceived and go down that journey. Holy Spirit, mercy on your church. Because let me explain something to you. When we go down that route, what we are doing is putting ourselves under an old covenant that God no longer operates by. God does not operate according to the law anymore. 
He, he never puts people under the law, and he doesn't relate to you according to that covenant. That covenant has been fulfilled in Christ. It's finished. I want to ask another question, and I'm going to answer this as we go, but I want you to keep this question in your head. How does God respond when the brokenness of our humanity disappoints Him? Let me, let me even rephrase it. Is He disappointed by the brokenness of our humanity? In the garden, God creates Adam and Eve, and what does he do with them? He walks with them. That's what he does. Man's occupation was God's face. And so man's job and, and, and responsibility was to cultivate and steward an environment where man and God meet. That's what we did. And God gives man choice and free will because if you don't get to choose love, it's not love. Right? He didn't make Jesus robots. He made sons and daughters that get to choose family. But here's the thing. He wasn't intimidated. He put two trees in the garden and he knew what man was going to do. The garden was an introduction to a dream that he had a master plan to fulfill. He wasn't disappointed when man sinned. He wasn't shocked going, really? Look how nice the garden is. He wasn't shocked. Because you know what's interesting? God's response to the, the brokenness of humanity was he asked a question that caused them to ask a question, which was this, where are you? He didn't even acknowledge the mistake. He didn't even come in and go like, hey, I told you not to eat of that tree. That's not where he started. The first thing he says is he goes, Adam, where are you? Because God's, God's design and his goal is intimacy, not sinlessness. So his first response to man's brokenness is, where are you? You're meant to be close. See, man, I, I'm, last night I was just rocked by this. The father going, Connor, I just want to be close. That's all I want. He's a papa. He's a dad. He's going, I just want to be close. And I think the heart of God is more broken at the zeal of the church towards sin than their actual sin. I think he's more heartbroken at the manner in which we are trying to deal with sin when God's saying, I never asked you to do that. I dealt with it and I did that so that you could be close because when you are close, you're different. God's after connection and intimacy and we're not hearing this from pulpits. We're not hearing this from platforms. And when things are going wrong in the church, we now have leaders getting up and they think they have a responsibility to hit the sheep. And they're calling broken people wolves and not dealing with the actual wolves that have crept into the church that are preaching heresy. And let me tell you, heresy is this. It's a false uh, holiness movement that is bringing the church back under law. And Paul is so crazy. He says, I wish they would castrate themselves. That's in your Bible. He's like, the ones who are preaching law in the church again, I wish they'd cut it off. How violent is that aggression? Because he's saying that kills. Legalism kills. 
not sin, legalism. There is a grace awakening that's hitting the church again. It happened about 12 years ago. It's happening again. We've come full circle and we panicked and we've gone back to the law and Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. There's a grace revolution that's going to hit the earth again. Why? It's the only way we get made ready as a bride. Philippians chapter 3. Let's make this legal. Philippians chapter 3. This is Paul. I want to tell you something about Paul. Paul, amazing, great Paul, murderer, right? Just so you know, murderer. Without Jesus, he's a religious murderer. <laughs> and he says something so interesting. Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, out of the Amplified. But more than that, I count everything as lost compared to the priceless privilege and supreme advantage of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and of growing more deeply and thoroughly or intimately acquainted with Him, a joy unequaled. For His sake I've lost everything, and I consider it all garbage so that I may gain Christ and may be found in Him, believing and relying on Him, not having any righteousness of my own derived from my own obedience to the law and its rituals, but possessing that genuine righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. That's in your Bible. I don't know if it gets more clear than that. And this, so that I may know Him, experientially becoming more intimately acquainted with Him, understanding the remarkable wonders of his person more completely, and in that same way experience the power of his resurrection which overflows and is active in believers, and that I may share in the fellowship of his sufferings by being continually conformed inwardly into his likeness, even to his death, dying as he did, so that I may attain to the resurrection that will raise me from the dead. This is the gospel Paul was preaching. This is the gospel Paul defended. This is the gospel that he wrote Romans about saying, I want, I want to make a clear theological statement around what the gospel actually is. And it is not about the church getting the act together. It is about us knowing him because we can be in his righteousness. Can you see that? So this is Paul. He writes that. Now we're going to follow this a little bit. Intimacy with God, oneness with God, is the only thing that produces the expression of his likeness in us and through us. Relationship with Jesus is the only thing that will produce the likeness, the expression of his likeness in you and through you. You are not like Christ because you try hard. You are not like Christ because you decided what you did is godly. You don't get to decide what's righteous and not righteous. Most of the time, you don't even know you're sinning. So the answer to, a, to, to deal with sin is not to try and recognize what is sin and make sure we don't do that because you're not equipped to know what's good and bad. And that's why we weren't me meant to eat to the tree of the knowledge of what? Good and evil. You're actually, you don't have the capacity to know what's right and wrong. You think you do. It's called self-righteousness. And this is why God has taken the emphasis off of right and wrong and he's put it on presence. Because his righteousness is the only thing that makes the wrong things right. You don't even know what's wrong. We now have a, a system where we evaluate things and we go like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's worse, that's even worse. This one's okay, it's still bad, but it's okay, that's really bad. So you, you don't feel guilt 
when you don't have faith today. Like none of you woke up this morning and went, I don't really, my faith is really low. And, and the Bible says that which is not a faith is sin. But none of you felt guilty about that. And the reality is this, that sin, not having faith, still separates you from God outside of Christ just as much as a murderer. So it's just as bad, but we don't feel that way because the, the earthly consequences are not as bad. And this is why God does not ask the church to deal with sin. He dealt with it. Because when it comes to eternity, there is a different measuring system. So intimacy and relationship with God, oneness with God, which only comes by Christ, it only comes by being in Him, that intimacy is the only way we will see the expression of His likeness in us and through us. Can I say this to you? Whether you express it or not, you're like Him. Oh, see, this is, this is where, the, where the grace of God gets scandalous, and I'm about to offend some people. You can be born again and like Christ, and not be seeing yet the fruit and fullness of that in your life, but you are still like Him. And the Father looks at you and sees Himself. And it's only when you believe what I've just said that fruit comes. The biggest problem in the church is that we go, I'm so glad God thinks that about myself. I don't think that about myself, and it's why I never see fruit. Because God's relating, me to a, relating with me a certain way, but I can't relate back. And so I, I spend my time praying prayers that God doesn't want to listen to. God, forgive me. I'm so sorry. I did forgive you, and I know you're sorry. But you're going to stay in this cycle of, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. And you're never going to see that I did forgive you. And because I forgave you, you've been fully empowered and enabled to be who I've called you to be. If you'll stop trying and just start receiving, you'll get a supernatural power in you and upon you. You'll begin to do things you never dreamt was possible. Suddenly you see fruit in your life, and you go, I, how did that happen? How did I get free? How did that person get healed? How did I have a word of knowledge for somebody? How did I get that business idea? How did I, there's things flowing from my life that's not me. I know it's not me. And guess what it does? It makes me more in love with him. Because so now I'm going, God, you're in me and through me and doing it. I'm so in love with Christ in me, the hope of glory. He chooses to live in my heart. He chooses to dwell in my heart. Are you with me? I'm sorry if there's anything I'm saying that's offending you, but I'm hoping that offense will release that spirit so you can be free. Amen? I always say this. Offense is just undealt with conviction. Even if you're right and offended, there's a conviction in your heart because maybe you care too much about being right. Do you get it? So if you're feeling offended, it's a good opportunity now to go, okay, Jesus, help me. I need to deal with whatever that conviction is. What is the conviction that I'm feeling that's causing offense and I want to walk free? Amen. <clears throat> if sin is the focus of our gospel, we've missed the heart of God. I want to try and read this as I wrote it. Too often, the church emphasizes the very thing that God hates, which is sin. Why does God hate sin? Just think about that. Does God hate sin because he's insecure in his righteousness and it's yucky? God doesn't hate sin because it's like, well, sin is you unholy, crazy, sinful people. It's just gross. God hates sin because of what it does to your belief system. God is very secure in his righteousness. He doesn't start to get like panicky when sinful people come near him. 
He's so secure in his righteousness. He's not intimidated by sin. He hates sin because of what it does to what you believe about yourself. What, what broke God's heart in the garden was that Adam and Eve now believed that they were actually uh, naked and, and ashamed. And he's, this is the kindness of God. God's response to them believing the lie was still to cover them. I don't know if you've seen that. God's response to Adam and Eve still believing the lie. They didn't need to put fig leaves on. But God still covers them. God makes the first sacrifice, takes the animal skin and covers them. It's a picture of Jesus. See, the only thing, this is incredible, the only thing that can separate us from God is unbelief. The only thing that can separate us from God is unbelief. Can I ask you a question? What if when God thinks about sin, all he thinks about is unbelief? He's not thinking about the things that we call sin. What if the things we call sin are the fruit of one sin? What if the more you believe what God actually says about you, the less you'll be concerned about those fruits and the less you see them in your life? Because you're more focused on his face, on his voice, and what he says about you, you're beginning to actually believe it, and what you believe, you'll live. Does this make sense? Is everyone okay? Some of you are like, I don't know if it's just going deep. Is that, is that what it is? If you're angry, we can box later. <laughs> I do need some practice. This is, this is beautiful. God wanted a covenant with man that didn't have terms and conditions for sin. Think about that for a second. God wanted a covenant with man that didn't have terms and conditions for sin. Meaning this, the covenant of the law, the Mosaic covenant, was God showing man our need for Jesus. Remember, man asked for the law. God didn't want to give them the law. Man, Israel said to God, you, Moses, you go up, you find out what he wants, and you come back and tell us, and then we'll do that. But we don't want to go up the mountain. So God gave the law out of a response to man's attempt at self-righteousness to prove and to show them you'll never meet this standard, you need me. You need to come up the mountain. Not one man, the whole nation, you need to come up the mountain into the scary, thunderous glory. Because in that glory, you die to yourself and you, you find Christ. So think about this. The covenant that Jesus has paved the way for, you, you need to know this. You, are, you live in a new covenant, and it is a covenant from the cross forward. You cannot relate to the covenant that Isaiah and them lived in. They were pointing towards the covenant that we now live in. Do not go back, read the Old Testament, and relate to it as your covenant. It's supposed to teach you about the one you're in now. Because Jesus pays this price, the ultimate price on the cross, and he becomes the fulfillment of all the T's and C's for sin. He fulfills the law. He perfects it in himself. And then he says, you're in me. Meaning, I am now the lens and the filter through which the Father sees you. Everything that, when he looks at you, everything he sees is the Son. It's Jesus. God speaks sonship. That's the language of the Father. And that's the only way he relates to you because of what Jesus has done. Do you get this? So God had a plan to remove sin from the conversation between, him, between himself and man. 
Do you understand this? God had a plan to remove sin from the conversation between you and him, but the church is still coming and saying, look at my sin. And God's going, I don't want to have that conversation. Do you know how painful it was to remove sin? It is a, it's a dishonor to the cross to keep bringing sin up. Because <laughs> people keep saying this to me. It's like, you know, Connor, you're, you're light on sin and you're, you're making it easy for people to sin. And I'm like, no, you are because you keep talking about it. If we spoke more about who we are in Christ, we'd be thinking and talking less about sin. And the less we think about it, the less we'll do it. Especially in, in what we are calling sin, which is just so carnal and earthly and we're missing the eternal point. He wants to be close to you. Because can I just encourage you? Paul still sinned after he got saved. He's so intense that John Mark is there and he gets a bit sick and so he's slowing them down and Paul gets offended by him and says he's no good for the ministry. Leave him behind. <laughs> like, Paul's a little intense. And, and later on, he repents and he actually sends, he goes, hey, bring John Mark for ministry. He's good for ministry. You can see, like, Paul's been on about a decade of heart journey with God and suddenly he realizes, like, hey, I missed it there. You're going to miss it. And grace holds you. So if you miss it and grace holds you, what makes you think you can hold someone else to their sin? Wow. Okay. The church too often believes that if we don't expose and emphasize sin... And if we don't deal with our sin, that we'll become more sinful. Think about that. The church often believes this, that if we don't expose sin, if we don't emphasize sin, and if we don't deal with sin, we're going to become a more sinful people. And it's so funny, the exact opposite is happening. Ever since the global church started nailing and exposing leaders in their sin, what are we seeing more of? Okay, the truth is this. The only way, just, just hear me on this. Is everyone still with me? If I'm losing you, I need you to tell me because this is not about a good sermon. I need you to catch what I'm saying. Like I will slow down, I'll go back, I'll say the same things over and over again. Are we together? Okay, the only way to expose sin is to go under the law. Can I show you something? Go to Romans chapter seven. I wanna show you something. This is scary, guys. This, will, this is sobering in the most beautiful way. Uh, Romans chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> I'm going to jump in. When you find it, you find it. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, if it had not been for the law, I would not have recognized sin. Hello? For I would not have known, for example, about coveting what belongs to another. And I would have no sense of guilt if the law had not repeatedly said, you shall not covet. Are you hearing this? I wouldn't have had guilt for coveting if the law hadn't told me you shall not covet. Stick with me. But sin, finding an opportunity through the commandment or the law to express itself, produced in me every kind of coveting and selfish desire. What? Sin, finding an opportunity through the law, began to produce every kind of coveting and selfish desire in me. 
For without the law, sin is dead. The recognition of sin is inactive. It's in your Bible. I'm reading Romans 7. Is everyone with me? Some of you are looking at me in disbelief like he's lying. Read it. (laughs) For without the law, sin is dead. The recognition of sin is inactive. I was once alive without knowledge of the law. But when the commandment or the law came and I understood its meaning, sin became alive and I died since the law sentenced me to death. I died and the sinful nature came alive in me because it was exposed and emphasized by the law. There is no guilt without law. Guilt is a product of law. Woe. And the very commandment or the law which was intended to bring life because it is holy actually proved to bring death for me. For sin, seizing its opportunity through the law, beguiled and completely deceived me and using it as a weapon, killed me, separating me from God. We need to read our Bibles. Like how many, when was the last time you camped out in Romans 7, you know? So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So we know that. The law is holy but it served a purpose, and the purpose was to expose sin. And God did not want to do that. He did it so that we would understand his heart for intimacy. The only way to his heart was through the Son. He was preparing us for the Messiah, but we don't live that side of the cross. We live this side of the cross. We're not in preparation for the Messiah. We received him. We are in preparation for the return so that we would be the bride he paid a price for. People need to hear this message. Did that which is good then become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, in order that it might be revealed as sin, was producing death in me by using this good thing as a weapon so that through the commandment, sin would become exceedingly sinful. Sin would become exceedingly sinful. So how, how did, what happens? When, when does the church become more sinful? When we come under the law. When we start using the law to expose sin and deal with sin and emphasize sin, we become more sinful because it's what the law does. Man, I'm sweating. Are you hearing me? Galatians chapter 3. I'm nearly done. Just follow me. You know, do you remember we used to sing songs about the scandalous grace of God? When last was the gospel scandalous to you? See, what legalism does is it actually tames the Christian. It makes you very lukewarm, very dull, and your message becomes very mundane. It's not attractive. It doesn't grab your heart doesn't make you want to get up and spend time with Jesus. That's what the law will do, because the law just separates you from God. It makes you feel like I'm I'm distant from Him. The grace of God makes you wake up every day and go, mercy's new today. So I wake up and mercy's new, meaning this, it's like it's the first day I've ever lived. So what's the first thing I'm going to do? Run to a perfect God who loves me, who's a good father, be with Him, 
Like, why would I not want to be intimate with the creator of the universe? Why would I not want to know a father who's perfect, who paid the ultimate price and has made me like him? Why, he's so beautiful. Why would I not want to be with him? Only because I, I think I don't deserve to be. It's the only reason you won't want to be with God. What you believe about yourself is what's stopping you from being with him, not what he thinks about you. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. I'm going to read a passage of scripture to stick with me. Why then the law? What was its purpose? It was added after the promise to Abraham to reveal to people their guilt because of transgression. That is to make people conscious of the sinfulness of sin. And the law was ordained through angels and delivered to Israel by the hand of a mediator, Moses, the mediator between God and Israel to be in effect until the seed, that's Christ, would come to whom the promise had been made. Now the mediator or go-between is not indeed for just one party, whereas God is only one and was the only one giving the promise to Abraham, but the law was a contract between two, God and Israel. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a system of law had been given which could impart life, then righteousness would actually have been based on the law. But the scripture, or the law, this is that word scripture is talking about the law, has imprisoned everyone under sin, so that the inheritance of blessing of salvation, which was promised through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe in him and acknowledge him as God's precious son. Stick with me. Now before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, imprisoned in preparation for the faith that was destined to be revealed, with the result that the law has become our tutor and our disciplinarian to guide us to Christ, so that we may be justified, that is declared free of the guilt of sin and its penalty, and placed in right standing with God by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the control and authority of a tutor and disciplinarian. We're not under the authority and control of the law. Are you with me? <sighs> For you were born again. Get an Amplified Bible. <laughs> For you who are born again have been reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and sanctified, and are all children of God, set apart for His purpose, with full rights and privileges through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. That is, you have taken on His characteristics and values. It's your Bible. It's the gospel. This is what we should be declaring from pulpits all across the world. It is not the law. The law was there to point you to Christ. We are not in the season of preparation for Christ. We are on the other side of that covenant, the new covenant that He paid for. We're not waiting for Him to do it. He did it. We're the ones who are meant to live it. We're the ones who are meant to be so full of grace and mercy that the world is looking at us going, this is too good to be true. It's so scandalous. It's so wild. Like this message, I'm realizing like, it's a good thing that it offends us because we're getting set free from legalism and a religious and political spirit in the church that's causing us to be so dull and tame and we're not getting it done. There are people right now sitting in churches across our city that are hearing a legalistic message that's keeping them bound and trapped in guilt, shame, and condemnation. And they're in a cycle of, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. I'm sorry, forgive me. And they've run to the altar call millions of times in their life. And they don't even remember when they got saved because they've prayed it so many times. 
And still today, they might run to the altar call again because they're so desperate to be right with God and they still think that they have to figure it out. And it's sincere. These are people who deeply want to be right. They're going like, I don't understand why I can't get it right. I don't understand why I'm not making the right decisions. Romans 7, if you keep reading, it says, I do, when I'm under the law, I do the things that I don't want to do and I don't do the things that I do want to do. Wretched man that I am, who will save me? That's Romans 7, that's Paul. And then he goes, thanks be to God. For who? Christ Jesus. He did it. He actually did it. He actually did it. Oh my goodness, he did it. For you and me and every single one of us, we're right with God. We're right with God. He's saying, run to me. Stop looking at sin and, 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 and emphasizing the brokenness of humanity because God's response to it is not disappointment. It's mature love. And this is what, what's the time? Ah! God, it's uh, good. 15 minutes. Give me 15. Is that okay? Give me 15 minutes. I want to touch on one thing. Mature love. God's response to the brokenness of humanity is mature love. Let me tell you what mature love is. Mature love is this. Even though you did it, I take responsibility. That's mature love. Mature love is this, that you messed up. I'll take it. If that's what God did for us, what is God saying to his church? He's saying this. Jesus said this. As the Father sent me, so I'm sending you. Jesus came and he said, you messed up. You lost it. But guess what? I took it. I took it upon myself. Mature love is this. Everything that could possibly separate you, all of your broken, messed up sin and twistedness, I took it upon myself. I, I let the Father emphasize it on me. He exposed sin. He exposed it. He did expose it. He exposed it on Christ. And he bled. He bled it all out. He gave everything. He spent his blood and his life to expose sin once and for all so that never, ever, ever, ever again would your sin be exposed. And yet the church wants to go and put people back up on crosses. The church is putting people on crosses and Jesus took that cross. God, help us. Help me, Jesus. Give me your mind, beautiful mind of Christ. It's like I can feel the ache of the Father's heart for his bride. He's crying out. He's going, I really did it. In the Aramaic, when, you know, when he said it is finished, the word is kalah, and it's, it's so beautiful because it's a word for perfection when a bride is made ready. See, here's the thing. We're preaching a gospel that she's not ready, and she needs to get ready for him to come back. But Jesus said she's ready when he said it's finished. So what if, what if the church's mandate is more about telling those who don't know Jesus to get saved and born again so that they're ready? See, what we're doing now is we're folk, we think making the bride ready means this. Let's deal with the sin in the church so that Jesus can come back. He's not coming back till we get fixed. Why would he say you're perfect when he died on the cross if we still had to get fixed? No, the bride is making herself ready by getting every tribe, tongue, and nation to come as one. The bride will be ready when there's no more unreached people groups. The bride will be ready when every tribe, tongue, and language heard the gospel, the wonders of God in their mother tongue. There were people last week who were wrecked by Megan singing in Afrikaans. Why? Because it's your mother tongue. Because you heard the gospel in your language that you heard your mom call your name in. That's getting the bride ready. Getting the gospel out. 
There are broken people out here, out of this room, right in front of us. You're seeing them every day, and they're just needing to know this message. You don't have to get your act together. You just need to come to Him. And when you believe what He's done in your heart, He's the most wonderful adventure your soul will ever have the privilege of going on. Relationship with Jesus changes everything. He's the one. He's the one. There's only one. He's holy. He's righteous. So, so how do I respond to sin? There's one. Like when, when we're walking with brothers and sisters who are in their sin and brokenness, it's not our job to deal with their sin and brokenness. It's our job to say, you know what? Me too. But there's one. There's one who's holy, who's righteous and is good. And here's the best news of all. We're in him. Which means this. If you've been baptized into Christ, guess what? You've been clothed with him. You have his characteristics, his values. The only reason you're not seeing it is because you don't believe this about yourself. Let me say this. Most of you are not spending time with Jesus, not because you're running from God. You're running from you. I know this in my own heart. When I become distant from God, it's not because I'm running from God. I know he's good. I know he loves me. I'm running from me. Because I refuse to let my opinion about myself bow to the word of the Lord. And when I do that, I submit to his word over me and I'm undone. And I find myself going, this one. And he really was on that cross. He really was. This is the message we're going to carry to the nations. This is the message you need to take to work tomorrow morning. This is the message when you're lifting weights in the gym and talking to those guys and when you're at university or when you're studying or whatever it is that you're doing, being world champion of the CrossFit world, whatever. I'm teasing. This is what I'm talking about. When you're wrestling in WrestleMania 2, when you're whatever, we carry the message of the grace of God. When you're winning High Rock South Africa. See how much I believe in, in you guys. <laughs> See, the new covenant of grace emphasizes oneness with God in Christ. And let me tell you what oneness with God does. It empowers love. And love leads you to intimacy. There's this incredible scripture in the Bible that says this, the kindness of God or the love of God leads to repentance. Change in the church is going to come from love, not from the law. I'm nearly done. Yeah. God's plan, if you want to know, what, what, how did he deal with sin? God's plan for man's sin was to take it upon himself so that man could know love. That's mature love. Mature love is this. I will take your sin upon myself so that you can know love. I'm not going to expose. I'm not going to nail I'm not going to point fingers and I'm not going to carry offense. I'm going to take it upon myself and I'm going to love you. That's mature love. Ah. Isn't this, isn't this beautiful? God's love was not dependent on man's response to his love. When Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's got two criminals next to him, one insults him and one says, Lord, have mercy on me. Remember me in paradise. His love was no different to either of them. He had the same love for both men on the cross, regardless of their response. He had the same love for the Pharisees, regardless of the manner in which they treated him. He had to handle things a certain way, which I'm going to talk about. But mature love is this, I will take responsibility. Jesus died for the Pharisees who spat at him. Jesus died for the Pharisees who killed him. Are you with me? When, uh, when Jesus and Barabbas 
if you study, they were going to release one of the prisoners and they present Jesus and Barabbas and they say, pick one. It's that time of year you get to have a prisoner released, pick Jesus or Barabbas. And the crowd picks Barabbas. I'll tell you why. Because that's the nature of man. We are quick to see brokenness in others and in ourselves before we will see Christ. So the crowd chose Barabbas because they saw themselves in Barabbas. Jesus was so pure and beautiful, he was offensive. And they couldn't see that he was there to love them. So they chose brokenness. And the church is doing the same thing over and over again. And we see, we see Barabbas, the one who's wicked and evil and horrible, but I can relate to him, so let's choose him. And Jesus says, I came to take your sin upon myself so that for the first time in history, you can relate to me. And the day that you relate to Jesus as a righteous son and daughter is the day you've entered into mature love. See, the new covenant is upheld by God, not man. You cannot break the covenant God has made with you through Christ. You can't do it. The sooner we believe that, the sooner we will walk free from the voice of the accuser in our lives. The sooner we believe that my covenant with God cannot be broken by me, the sooner we actually believe that, the quicker we'll be free from the voice of the accuser because there's nowhere for the accusation to land when my wholeness and my identity, my well-being is in a covenant that cannot be broken. We need this, Jesus. So the goal is not to try and be sinless. The goal is to be sons. I'm just gonna say a couple things and I'm done. The true measure of your faith, hear me this morning, the true measure of your faith is not the performance of your Christianity but the depth of your love. Can you love the unlovely? Can you lay down your rights to love the one? See, it's easy to love the ones that you naturally love. Mature love is when you're prepared to take responsibility for somebody else's brokenness so that they can know love. And the way we do that is not by saying, hey, I'm going to make your sin my sin. It's by saying this, Jesus made your sin his sin. So I can take personal responsibility to love you in the way that he loves you. And that's mature love. When I'm free from myself so that I can love you in the way that he loves you. That's mature love. God, do it in us. Amen? So love, I'm nearly done. Love is the evidence of God. 1 Peter 4.8 says this, love covers a multitude of sins. When the love of God is the evidence of God in the church again, guess what we won't be talking much about? Sin. Guess what we won't be emphasizing in each other's lives? Sin. Guess what we won't be exposing? Love covers. You know these leaders who are having these moral failures and things? You know what they needed? They needed the church to cover them with love. Where they could go into a season of wholeness and restoration without being nailed and exposed. Love covers a multitude of sins. 1 Corinthians 13, 5. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Mature love keeps no record of wrongs. Now, I'm not saying it's like, hey, flip the switch and suddenly you're there. I'm saying we have to go be intimate with Jesus so that he can cultivate mature love in us. And I can just receive it. I can say, God, the love that I receive from you is mature love. 
help me to love in this way. Love keeps no record of wrong. Love covers a multitude of sin. I need to move quickly. The world does not need a sin-conscious, self-righteous, condemning church. You can tell Max I've given her a bunch of one-liners here. She can <laughs> the world does not need a sin-conscious, self-righteous, condemning church. The world needs mature love. The world needs the bride of Christ. See, the bride of Christ is the ones who've received the love of God and are walking in mature love. Amen? It's not about how the church should deal with sin. Jesus already did. It's about how the church should... Sorry, this is... Whew. It's not about how the church should deal with sin. Jesus already did that. But we as the church should be saying, okay, how do we deal with pain and hurt? Because that's different. And dealing with pain and hurt is about relational health. And relational health in the church has to start with mature love. It has to start with love covers a multitude of sins. You see, because Jesus, the very people that he led and loved so faithfully, he was still able to confront, he was still able to walk, but all of it was unto them seeing who they are in Christ. None of it brought guilt, shame, or condemnation. Are you with me? The relational consequences of hurt are processed and outworked as the Holy Spirit heals the soul. This is when we prefer one another in the church and we allow a process of healing to happen by the Holy Spirit. This is how the family of God are meant to operate. When the consequences of sin affect us relationally, our job is not to expose the sin, our job is to go on the journey of emotional healing, which only happens by the Holy Spirit under the grace of God. And the only way we get emotional healing is by emphasizing the finished work of the cross, not by emphasizing the sin. This is relational health in the church. It's how the grace of God is outworked relationally. And sometimes it takes time because your spirit man is in agreement, but your soul is coming into agreement with the process of healing. It can happen like this, but it can also take a little bit of time. And what love does, what mature love does, is it covers in seasons of transformation. Because it's unto one thing, hearts together, knitted with Jesus, running after him, following him, reconciled, forgiven, made whole. Does this make sense? Okay, new covenant people live with confidence in what God upholds. Only then will our hearts be free to love him, to love ourselves, and to love others. When our confidence is in his grace, not in our own strength. So freedom doesn't come from trying to deal with sin. It comes from receiving the love of God and believing it. I wanted to end by reading John 17, but I'm gonna ask you to go do that. I'm giving you homework, is that okay? I want you to go read John 17. This is Jesus' final prayer, like public prayer to those that he's been leading. And his cry, what he's, what he's praying is this, God, that they would be one as we are one. And he says something really interesting. He says that that they would be one as we are one so that the world would know why you sent me. He's saying the world needs to know that you sent me not to deal with sin, but to make us one. Sin was the obstacle that he had to remove. What God was dealing with was an orphan spirit. He was welcoming his sons and daughters home to a father that loves them. So go read John 17. And I, I want to just summarize this and then pray for us and just say, 
what I've just shared today, it's a lot. You're not going to remember everything I said. You can go listen to it again and again, but it's more so that you would catch the heart of God. The heart of God, the grace of God, the gospel that needs to be preached. It's one that brings us into right standing with Him, that we are righteous, holy, and pure because of who Jesus is. There is only one. And the church is going to become healthy when we start to stop emphasizing and looking at sin. We keep looking at Jesus. We're pointing one another to Jesus, and we're allowing love to mature in our hearts because love covers a multitude of sins. The church is going to shine when she becomes love, not when she becomes sinless. Amen. Won't you stand? Thank you for sitting in the heat. I appreciate it, and I'm so grateful. My prayer today is that hopefully, and, and I can't do this, the so Holy Spirit's got to do this. Hopefully something, even if it's the smallest flicker, that's something ignited in your heart that's like, I am running into the secret place with Jesus. Like, yeah. You need to get there. And yes, in the beginning, you might feel absolutely nothing. It's not about feelings. It's about faith. Run. Run to Him. Be with Him. Be intimate with Him. Allow Him to begin to change and heal your mind so that you're not thinking about what you think you've done wrong. You're thinking about the perfection and the wholeness of who Jesus is and that He's welcomed you to be with Him, that He loves you unconditionally. Amen? Why don't you lift your hands? Holy Spirit, this morning we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the Gospel. God, I, I release the spirit of sonship in this room. I thank you, Holy Spirit, if there's anything that I've said this morning that's not in your heart. God, I pray it be forgotten. But Jesus, that which is of you, the gospel, I thank you that it would mark us, that it would change our inner man, that we would be filled to overflowing with the unconditional love of God. I'm asking for my own heart this morning, and I'm asking for this house. Would you make us a people of mature love? Make us a people of mature love. Help us, Jesus. We lean on you. We receive the fullness of the cross, the fullness of what you've paid for. And I thank you that by the Holy Spirit, we will become a bride for your glory, a body for your name, a dwelling place for your presence, that we would host the presence of Jesus and that we would be obedient to everything you call us to because you are obedient in us. And so Jesus, we want to see our city saved. We want to see the nations come to know you, filled with worship, filled with the glory of God. But I'm asking that you would start with our hearts, that the grace of God would completely liberate, liberate our hearts, liberate our minds, make us like you. In Jesus' name, Lord, I bless this house. I bless every person here. I bless the children from the youngest to the oldest, God. We bless every person here. Thank you that we get to follow you together, that we get to worship you. I pray that you were blessed by our worship and ministered to by our worship this morning. God, as we leave this room, we leave as sons and daughters filled with the Holy Spirit, burning with the fire of the gospel, ready to see your kingdom come in all that we do. We love you, we bless you, and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, thank you. We love you. Please have some coffee. I know it's hot. I'm so sorry, but thank you for staying. Uh, I'm excited for next weekend. But by the way, this Wednesday is our first sanctuary night. We're going to be here encountering Jesus. It's going to be really wild. You don't want to miss it. Wednesday night. Otherwise, we'll see you Saturday night and Sunday morning as well. Love you. Bless you. Have a beautiful day. Thank you for being here.